Good morning. Look at somebody and say, it's good to see you. Now look back at them and say, it's good to see me too, all right? Hey, we're so glad that you're here. Again, my name's Sam. I have the great privilege of being the lead pastor here at Crossroads Church. And what that means is every single week, I try to tell the greatest story ever told. Now, not because I'm some great communicator or it's even my story, but I believe this story is a story about Jesus. And Jesus is the greatest person to ever walk the face of the planet. Actually, he's more than just a person. I believe he's God in the flesh. And so if you've ever asked the question, what is God like? You don't have to look any further than the person person of Jesus. And we believe the Bible is this story about Jesus. We say this around here. We say it's all about we wrote it on the wall at both campuses if you need some help with that. And it, we're so excited that if you're gathering from the Lompoc campus, welcome to Crossroads. We are so glad that you are here. Maybe you didn't realize that right now, uh, thanks to technology and our wonderful team in the back, uh, that there are people gathered together at 213 North J Street in Lompoc. There's a gathering of people. And so we are one church in a couple locations. And if you want to know who they are, you'll have to come to the midweek because they're there and uh, we're all here together and we're so glad that you are joining us this morning. And so if you're in the room here in Buellton or at your Lompoc and you need a Bible, maybe you forgot yours, you can just slip up your hand and one of our ushers will get one to you to help you follow along today. And then if you don't have a Bible, that's our gift to you. We pray that you take that and read it every single day because every time you do, you get to meet with Jesus. Amen. I'm convinced that the more and more uh, we look to the scriptures, the better off we will be. This side of the room, good job. Uh, Pastor Rick's uh, out sick this morning. He's not even over here to lead you astray, but he's, uh, he's watching online. Pastor Rick, we're praying for you. Hope you feel better soon. Hey, turn in your Bible to Genesis and uh, Genesis chapter... 14, and it is the first, the first book of the Bible. We're going to be in chapter 14, looking at verse 17. And then here's what I want you to do, uh, just for the sake of uh, time and clarity. And one of the reasons why sometimes um, kind of there was a, a generation that would always put uh, the Bible on the screen. And sometimes we do that and we have that technology to do that, but I insist on not doing that so that you bring your Bible and you look at it yourself. Uh, and then if we don't, if you don't have a Bible, we got one for you. I mentioned that earlier and that's our gift to you. But what I want you to do is I want you to see not just whatever we put on the screen. I want you in your hands, in your Bible to begin to look and create the habit of looking for these texts yourselves. And so I want you to look at Genesis 14 verse 17. And then I want you to mark the Psalms. I want you to look at Psalms uh, 110 and I want you to mark Psalms 110, Genesis 14, verse 17, Psalms 110, and then I want you to flip, it's about two-thirds of the way each time. I want you to then turn to Hebrews, how many fingers you got? How many many marks can you put? Then I want you to look at Hebrews chapter 7, Hebrews chapter 7, Genesis 14, 17, Psalms 110, Hebrews 7. And we're going to get to those as the sermon progresses because we believe the Bible is one continuous story from beginning to end, and it's all about the person of Jesus. And I want to show you that this particular text, even in Genesis, links in halfway through the book in Psalms. And then towards the end of this library of books we call the canon of the Bible, you're going to see that again in Hebrews chapter 7. So in Genesis 14, 17, you can say amen if you're confused. <laughs> After his return from the, the defeat of, 
I tried over and over to pronounce this, and, uh, and for a moment I wanted to say something funny. Uh, Chedor Lamor and the kings who were with him and the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Sheba. This is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, or uh, some would believe this was a first uh, ancient world, a, a time where they called it Salem, uh, short for Jerusalem, and that Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of the most the priest of God, the most high. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. And he was a priest of God, the most high. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abram by God, most high possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God, most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take, uh, I will not take a thread or sandal strap or anything that is yours. Least you say I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Will you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you for who you are and who you are to us. We ask for your grace that you would help us in all things. Thank you for these passages that you've left that all scripture is God-breathed and it's profitable for exhortation, for challenging one another, for rebuking us, for encouraging one another, and that when we look to the scriptures, we ultimately are looking for you. And that's for our good. And we thank you and praise you. Let everything we say and everything we do bring glory to you and good to this valley. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. So we've been journeying through the book of Genesis. And where we find ourselves now is we've been introduced to this man, Abram, who God has spoken to and he singled out. God has dealt with all of humanity. And what we've seen are these fantastic stories that uh, display for us how all have sinned. Humanity keeps going his own way. And, and then God shows us what happens when he singles out one and blesses. And we've seen the journey of of Abram, who later will be known as Abraham. But we see the journey of Abram, how he is constantly being blessed right off the bat, but sometimes he gets it right and sometimes he gets it wrong. And so if you feel like your faith journey has been sometimes you get it right and sometimes you get it wrong, you're in good company. Amen. And that's good news for us. And so when we read the Bible, we've been talking about how it puts on display for us the humanity of these individuals. So sometimes we make the heroes of the Bible, we make them infallible. And yet the story of the Bible is about everyone else getting it wrong and one person getting it right. And that is including our patriarch, Abram. And God singles out Abram and he says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you the father of many nations and actually all the nations of the world will be blessed and all the families of the world will be blessed through you. We actually begin to talk about how this blessing that God says to Abraham, he talks about nations and he talks about families. And then somehow he forgets that maybe his wife was a part of the whole idea of family. And if you notice this, what happens with families is a man meets a woman and there's a family. fill in the blank. And, and, and that's how it happens. And families together and communities become great nations. And we've been talking about how uh, ultimately the failure and, and the erosion of the family leads to the erosion of nations. Sometimes we think nations are this ethereal thing and it's, and it's governments and regimes and, and really it's made up of people who are part of families and ultimately these families is what undergirds our society and so we've been been challenged in the text that that oftentimes we get focused on what's happening in the nation I know that you're not one of those but some of us the rest of us the honest among us uh, get caught up on what's happening in the world around us three of you were honest about that 
And, and you know, we get caught up. And, and so often, and over the past few sermons, I've, I've had men say to me, hey, that hit me in the chest. Hey, that hit me in the gut. Hey, I had to live with that because oftentimes I get caught up on what I see in the news. I get caught up with what I see in world events to the neglect of what I know I can do, which is take care of my family. I can take care of the relationships that God has put in front of me. So oftentimes we can point our fingers at others and abdicate our responsibilities to deal with what we must take care of. Amen. And so we've been, we've been talking about this and Abram's an example of that. And so Abram actually makes this shift where he starts to go, no, 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 no. God is the one who builds us up. God is the one who establishes. God is the one who's in control. And I'm going to trust him. Last week, we talked about uh, ultimately how God somehow writes a better story than the story you can write for yourself. And I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that God writes a, a beautiful story out of the mess and out of the muck and the, and the clay. God can take something that you thought could not turn out for good and somehow he's able to write the most fantastic story. See, sometimes when we say God is in control, it can bring anxiety on us. When we say God chooses, when we say God works together, when we say God is the initiator, can I tell you that if ultimately when we talk about the, the bigness and greatness of God, if it brings anything but peace and comfort to you, then you have a wrong view of God. Because ultimately when I think about God who is the most loving and just and gracious and slow to anger, the most benevolent, he is the very definition of love. He is the greatest. And this is good news that he is in control. But we kind of argue with that, right? We're like, man, if God, you just let me make all the decisions. And, and your spouse is like, no, no, don't. Don't let, don't let him decide, right? Like, because sometimes we, we, we are convinced that if, that if it would just work our way, and oftentimes we get our way, God allows us to have our way, and we realize that we ended up in no way at all, at a dead end. We, we, we found ourselves at a crossroads, pun intended, and God said, hey, go this way, but I'll allow you to go your own way. We've all been there. We've all made those decisions. And the Bible tells the stories of that. Paul, or, or the Bible tells us uh, about Abram who, who makes one bad decision on one page and then somehow he realizes through his life and his events, through his struggle, through his suffering. Have you ever noticed that it's suffering that oftentimes shapes us into who we are? Man, if you were to talk to people who've been around Christianity, that they'd serve faithfully God. If you pick somebody out of the room, the gray hairs and the no hairs, I got both, friend, right? And if you ask them like, hey, hey, tell, tell me how you became so faithful. How did, how did you become so trusting of God? How, how is it that your relationship is so solidified? They won't, they won't tell you a good story. They won't tell you about a good time more often than not. Let's say, sit down, son, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you about how it went wrong. Let me tell you how I didn't think we were going to make it. Let me tell you about a report we got. Let, let me tell you of how I, I didn't think my children were going to make it through that. I thought they were long gone. But somehow God, through the struggle and through the suffering and through the journey, somehow it was all of that suffering shaped us into who we are. So count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face various trials and tribulations, for it's the trying of your faith that produces pure gold. Someone say amen to that if that's been your story. So there's many among us who have those stories, and the Bible doesn't remove us from that. So when you read the Bible and your expectation is, I'm going to go find the heroes of the faith, what you're going to find is the same humanity that you see in you, you're going to see in the text and the struggle. But yet what we also see in the text is the progression of the individual. 
What we also see in the text is lessons learned. And those that we admire are not the ones who were perfect, but the ones like the great prophet Rocky Balboa. It's not about how hard you can hit, right? But how hard you get hit. I thought that was pretty good, actually. Uh, like some of you are like, whoa, right? Like it's about the struggle. It's about seeing the heroes of the faith stumble and fall and then get back up. The Bible even says about David, David, David who slays Goliath becomes king over Saul. I mean, he beat out the tall guy for king, right? Some of us got hope, right? Like, and yet, Man, he becomes an adulterous murderer. King David, who his offspring, the seed of David, will rule and reign. He will become king. Jesus chooses David, the messed up. But here's what the Bible says, that that David was a man after God's own heart. Why? Because he was quick to repent. Somebody go, you know, I got it wrong but I'm going to struggle forward. See, sometimes uh, I I want to make sure that we get the message right, that even though we see the flaws of the leaders, those that we admire, those that we look to are not ones who have it all together, but those who stumble forward and get back up and keep pursuing the one who's called them to a higher purpose. Like that's our story. So for you, then if there is a struggle, then struggle forward. If there's a stumble, then stumble forward. Stumble past the first down line. Get further along. If you've tripped, if you're messed up, keep moving and struggling forward. See what we say here at Crossroads, oftentimes when it comes to baptism, because baptism is this place where we think, man, if they get baptized, then they're perfect. And if they go through that, and we're getting ready to baptize on February 5th, February 5th, some of you are getting baptized, you don't know it yet, on February 5th, and, and yet it, it's, not, it's not you saying that I'm, I'm perfect, you're saying I'm following the one who is perfect, and what you're saying to those around you, you're saying, I'm, I, man, I don't have it all together, I'm just following Jesus, and what you're saying to the world and to the community and to families is like, I'm following Jesus, so if you get around me, you might bump into him. I mean, what if that was our story? What, what if we lived a life so close to Jesus that if people got around us, they just happened to bump into Jesus? They stumbled into relationship. And oftentimes what I say is sometimes where we're at is we're following together and I don't want to be a guru. I want to be a guide. I want to put my boots on and, and my pack and, and gear up with you. And sometimes you might pass me up. Some of us run. Some of us stumble. Some of us are walking. Some of us in the room are just crawling and inching forward. And no matter where you're at in, this, in, in the journey, I'm so thankful. And us around her, we're thankful that we're on the same path. And so you're welcome in the struggle forward. Amen. You're welcome here, no matter where you're at in this journey. And we're going we're gonna to come alongside. And when we see someone stumble, the Bible says you pull your brother up out of his sin. You don't leave him there. You don't point and go, man, <laughs> see you at the finish line, right? <laughs> because the least you think you stand, you will fall. So be careful. At least you think you got it together. And yet... The Bible shows us this. Abram is one of those. In this story, he gets it right. In the story before, he gets it wrong. He starts to stumble forward. He's going to make some major mistakes going forward, even though today he gets it right. And yet, this passage is a beautiful passage that Abram had just left a battle. He went after Lot. We talked about how he divided his property in half and allowed Lot to choose. And he got the very, uh, the very land that God had already promised him. He trusts God and he, he chose with his heart. He acknowledged God and God worked out the rest. Lot chooses with his eyes. Abram chooses with his heart, the heart that God has placed in us, and yet we test our heart because the Bible says that our, the heart can be a deceiver above all things. So, above all else, guard your heart. 
for out of it flow the issues of life. That, that intuition that you think you have, the thing that inside of you, you think I'm going to go this way versus this way. And so be careful what's influencing your heart. Be careful what's influencing the innermost parts of your being. Be careful what you see, little eyes. Be careful what you hear, little ones. Be careful what goes into your heart. Because the issues of life flow from it. Abram chooses wisely, chooses with his heart. Lot chooses with his eyes. He plants his tent towards Sodom, for, towards sinful men, and he's taken captive. And Abram, like Jesus, although sometimes we, pinch, we pitch our tent in Hades, we pitch our tent in hell. You ever made a decision, got to a place, and then you got there, and you said, God, if you'll get me out of this one. I never do this again, right? Like, like, uh, <laughs> now it's sparking a memory, right? Uh, like, God, just get me out of this mess. Get me out of this situation. And, and what does he do? He delivers. He doesn't stand far off and go, man, I told you. Can't believe you did that again. No, even though uh, the psalmist says, even though I make my bed in hell, there you are with me also. This is the story of Lot. And Abram, a foreshadowing of Jesus in this moment, goes after Lot. He leaves his, his fields. His, it's as if Jesus' story, he leaves the 99 and goes after one. He, he takes and he takes an army with him, 300 and some men that's born in his house. And he goes and he rescues Lot. And God delivers him. He slays these, these wicked kings. And on his way back, he meets this peculiar figure. On his way back, there's this king that comes out to meet him in the valley, and his name is Melchizedek. And it says that he's this righteous king, and he's this king of Salem, which later we'll know as the capital of Abram's future promised land, the capital of Canaan land, Jerusalem. And somehow Melchizedek is this king of and he's also a priest of the Most High God. And then it says that because of who Melchizedek is, Abram has this reverence for him, and he has all the spoils of war that he has just made, has just gained in his conquering, in his salvation of Lot. And then he says this, he says, I want to give you a tenth of all that I have. He gives to Melchizedek. After Melchizedek comes and gives him a blessing and reminds him, blessed are you, Abram, by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be to God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything he had. Now, this is a peculiar story. It's one that we got to kind of dig through and dive through, and that's why you've marked Psalms 110, right? Still got your finger there? And you've marked Hebrews 7. This Melchizedek is a peculiar figure, and he's actually debated among theologians about who actually Melchizedek is. And let me give you two schools of thought. Melchizedek is referenced in Psalms 110. 10, and he says that the Messiah will be uh, a priest like the order of Melchizedek. Psalms 110 is actually the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. If there's a quote, and it's not just from one particular part of Psalms 1.9. It's not like just one verse. That's why sometimes we forget all of the depth of Psalms 110 because the New Testament authors quote different parts of Psalms 110. But this particular part, Psalms 110, references this story. Psalms 110 says the Messiah will somehow be linked to Melchizedek. 
This figure that we're reading in Genesis 14. There's a long way to go before we get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's a long way between Melchizedek meeting Abram and David being on his throne and David actually writing Psalms 110. There's a long way to go between Genesis 14 and Hebrews 7 after the resurrection, after the ascension, right before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. There's a long gap between Genesis 14 and somehow this story in the beginning of the Bible links the story all the way through. Seems like a pretty important figure, wouldn't you think? And yet he's a peculiar figure. Maybe one we've not talked about. Maybe one we don't reference or understand. So here's two schools of thought. And I might give you mine. Still debating. One school of thought is that somehow Melchizedek is a pre-incarnate Christ. That somehow this is what theologians would call a Christophany. A Christophany is where we see Christ appearing because Christ is outside of time. He is from the beginning and the end. He will say to his questioners, Pharisees and Sadducees, when they ask him, man, who do you think you are? You, you think you're better than Abraham? And he, and he says, before Abraham was, I am. He goes, you're not even 35 years old, old bucko. Like, what do, you, what do you mean? He goes, no, 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 I tell you, I am. I mean, I've always existed. And so theologians believe there are moments and there are times in the Bible where we see Christophanies, where we see the image of God portrayed like a man. And oftentimes in the, 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 the Old Testament, we see the figure called the angel of the Lord and the angel of the Lord appeared to them. And what we'll see is that in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord is God appearing like a man and then when we get to Christ, Christ is God has become a man. This is why Jesus' most uh, famous term, most favorite term for himself was the son of man, which we see in Daniel 7. A figure that's like God, and yet he's like a man all beginning to force out. So there are some schools of thought that Melchizedek was somehow a pre-incarnate Christ, that he was a Christophany ruling and reigning in this area. And he shows up out of nowhere. The authors of Genesis do not give us any genealogy. We don't know who his parents are. And Hebrews will actually, Hebrews 7 will actually reference that saying he had no mother and father. And he just began out of nowhere in the story meaning he's like an eternal figure that's just there and we don't understand it. And somehow he is a king and a priest. Clear as mud? Now you know what my week has been like. My wife was like, what are you going to preach on? Uh, Melchizedek, right? How's that going to go? I don't know, right? Like, and yet that's one view and the reason why people take that view is because uh, they don't fully understand this particular figure. He's a mystery. And we go, God, if this is Christ uh, before the incarnation, somehow you were there, then praise be to God. And Hebrews says something that you could make the argument for that. And, and somehow... Uh, Somehow Abram sees him with reverence and offers him a tithe, a tenth of everything. He makes an offering to him as if he's making an offering unto God. Now, I'm not going to tell you my view, but it's not that one. And there's only a couple, right? What we see here, I think is more accurate in the text, is that Melchizedek is a human being. He is someone that in the story is used as a type to propel us forward. So the author of Genesis doesn't give us any information. What we know is that, that he's just there and he worships God. 
See, every other person in the story, we see how they came to know Christ or how they came to know Yahweh, the creator God. It's passed down from generation to generation. And then all of a sudden we just meet this figure who also worships the one true God and he's righteous. Uh, He's the king of righteousness and the king of peace, Jerusalem. So he, he is a king of righteousness and peace, and he's also a priest of the most high God. Then the authors of the Old Testament in Psalms 110, so I want you to look at Psalms 110. We'll use this type and say that the Messiah... Psalms 110 verse 1 says, The Lord says to my Lord, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Now this first passage in Psalms 110 is a fantastic passage because it actually points to the triune God of the Bible. See, Jews were monotheistic. There there is one God, and we believe that as well. But we believe in the Trinity. We believe in a triune God. And how this makes sense to us as Christians is that God in and of himself is relational. God in and of himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have enjoyed this divine relationship for all of eternity. Now, C.S. Lewis calls this the, the, the divine dance. It's as if God has been in this dance, this beautiful relationship from the beginning of time. And here's the beauty of the triune God. He is by definition love. And if he's not a relationship in his self, in his being, then he cannot be love's very definition. He can be loving but not the very definition of love. How do we know what love is? We look at God. And we look at God the Father's relationship with the Son. We see God the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father. And God sent the Son, and the Son came and lived and was obedient to the Father unto death, death on a cross. And because of this, God the Father has given Jesus a name which is above every other name. To what? To the praise of God the Father. It's this beautiful dance of the Trinity. You could make up something simple. But the truth of the scriptures are complex. The complexity of God to to learn and to study and to plunge the depths of the creator God will take all of eternity. Are you ready for the journey? Three of you, you're going with me? You can study God for all of eternity and you will never plunge his depth. You can look and behold his beauty. And yet what I know in his simplicity is that God is love and he is relationship and he offers that relationship to us. And one of these passages that that stumbles the Jews that Jesus will quote himself. He says, well, what do you do when when Jesus begins to refer to himself as God? And they go, no, 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 no. There is one God. He says, what do you do with Psalms 110? The Lord said to my Lord. Now, in the ancient language, there's two words here. There's one for Yahweh, which is the first one. And it was a, a symbols, or, or not symbols, but, but letters, uh, because the ancient Jews would not say the word Yahweh. And so they would begin to take out consonants in and only use the vowels in his name. And so we, now we're not, we're not afraid of that. We believe that we can come boldly before the throne room of grace. And we know that God refers to himself as Yahweh the creator God. This is what the Jews would refer to him, but they would not say his name. So they begin to use other words in its place like Lord. So he says, the Lord Yahweh says to my Lord, which is the word Adonai, which is another word for God that they would use. But our English translation says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit here at my right hand until I make your enemies a Footstool. What is this pointing to? This is pointing to the reality that God became a man. His name is Jesus. 
and that Jesus is not just any ordinary man. He is God in the flesh. He is the Lord. And so when people say you are Christ, the Lord, the son of the living God, they are believing that he is the fulfillment of Psalms 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. Not coerced, not, not, not compe- like made to like kings to their subjects telling them you must worship me. He says in the day of your reign, people will freely choose to come under your rule and your reign. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth, and he will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Do you remember last week we talked about the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom? When you read that passage, he says, this is who Jesus is. Here's who the Messiah will be. Jesus will point to this passage to point to his divinity, to point to the fulfillment that he is like this figure in Psalms 110, and he is unto the order of Melchizedek. I want you to look at Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 11 says this, now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received by law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise out of the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in priesthood, there there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. Now what he's pointing to is the priest of the law would come from the Levites. Well, Jesus's line is from David, from Judah. Only Levites could be priest by law. And so when Jesus is called a priest, they're going, wait a second, you're from Judah. You can't be king and a priest. That's important. But Hebrews begins to tell us something different. It says, yes, but don't you remember there will be one who comes arising not from the Levites, but from the line of Melchizedek, who was called a priest of the Most High God and the king of Jerusalem. All you Bible nerds are geeking out right now. (laughs) For the rest of you, I'm going to summarize this at the end. (laughs) Says this becomes more evident when other priests arise in the likeness of Melchizedek. Let me back up. Belonging to another tribe, which no one has served at the altar, for it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when other priests arise in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirements concerning bodily descent, but by the power of the indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of his weakness and its uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. I want you to hear this. Deep in your heart. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it is not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. 
But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds the priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Subsequently, he is able to save the uttermost, those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives and makes intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people. Since he did, not, he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Terry, would you come up and play for me? Man, what? Whatever. Just make me sound spiritual. <laughs> Probably the Led Zeppelin guitar. <laughs> I think that's a good choice. Now, here's the big picture. The reality is, is that in our lives, we look for a few different things. It's always a part of our upbringing and our lives. That's good. That's good. I like that. Sounded super spiritual at that moment, didn't it? There's some things that we're looking for. And human beings on their own will never live up to what we're looking for. Calvin began to point to Jesus and, and teach these things about Jesus. Jesus is our prophet. Jesus is our priest. And Jesus is our king. The Bible begins to tell us this story because everyone's trying to make sure they dot every I and the Jews are trying to figure out who, who's the guy by formula and not by divine providence. And yet Jesus still lives up to every checkbox. See, in the Hebrews' mind, in the nation of Israel, there needed to be a separation of powers. And we know that to be true today, don't we? Anyone gets too much power? And yet, even if you have a place of authority and power, you're jealous of somebody else's place in authority and power. And yet, the separation of powers, the way we even know it in our U.S. Constitution, is given to us in the Scriptures. See, Israel was ruled in a spiritual way and in a natural way. So you had kings and you had prophets and priests. And they submitted and were accountable one to another. No one had sole authority. So like kings, when they failed, when they sinned, a prophet would come to them and say, hey, you, you, gotta, you gotta knock it off. You gotta do better. And some of them repented and God gave grace. And some of them drank the Kool-Aid of their own authority and lost sight of their, their fallibility and plunged their nation into chaos. And yet there was this separation. See, priests and kings were separate. Kings could not be priests. There's actually this story in Isaiah where King Uzziah goes into the temple and he tries to perform the priestly duties and God strikes him with a disease. He says, no, 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 that's not your place. I gave you your place and the priests have their place. I mean, you can see what the Bible is beginning to tell us that men will never live up and men will fail you and they can have too much power and power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely and yet all throughout our life we're looking for men 
to be teachers. Think about our life is, is consumed with looking to someone to teach us how to do something from the very time we're young. We need, we have to. And a lot of the things we do, you'll, you'll say very quickly, I don't know how to fix that. I don't know how to build that. I don't know how to work on that. No one taught me. Man, I, I don't know anything about it. I need someone to teach me. See, through your life, you're always going to be looking for someone to teach you. There's going to be things you need to know, and you're going to look for someone and somebody to teach you. And yet, that's why the enemy can use teachers to teach the doctrines of demons and corrupt and we see the place of teachers and the power of authority we see what happens in higher education see what happens even in elementary schools we try to pull away from foundational maybe biblical beliefs an acknowledgement of God think about the removal of God from teaching and yet nothing can be taught outside of him because he holds everything together. He is life. You go, well, Pastor, I mean, God doesn't teach me how to change a tire. Yeah, he does. You don't cuss while you're doing it, you know? Like there's a, there's a Christian way to, teach, to change a tire. There's a godly way to build something. There's a godly way to run your business. There's a godly way to do your taxes. Don't look, I'm not looking at anybody. He teaches. And yet teachers try to pull us away. So be careful who's teaching you. That's what prophets were. Prophets are teachers. Then in our lives, we're looking for someone to teach us, but we're also looking for someone to defend us. We're looking for a mediator. Man, think about when something goes wrong, you're like, no, 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 no. Like, you gotta, I, I need you to have my back. I need, I need a lawyer. I need a defendant. I need someone who's going to actually vouch for me. I need a reference. See, we're looking for a mediator throughout your whole life. You're constantly looking for someone to have your back. That's what the priests were. They were mediators between God and man. And yet, they were insufficient. Like, think about when you look for a reference... Like you're looking for someone who's got like letters by their name. Right? Like reverend. Right? Like, like you're looking for someone with credentials, with clout. You want them to actually vouch for you. And yet all of these men are flawed and no one can vouch for you when it comes to the one who's above all things. That's what Hebrews begin to say. He says, all these priests, all these pastors, they're messed up human beings like you. Let that sink in for a moment. And every day they had to offer repentance and sacrifice for themselves first before they could go in and offer sacrifice for the whole nation. Why? Because men are flawed. We're looking for a teacher. We're looking for a mediator. We're looking for a king. We're looking for a leader, someone to follow. Think about your life spent. Who do I follow? How do I know what to do? Please tell us. And look what the counterfeit of that is. We have celebrities and we have politicians and we have flawed human beings presenting themselves forward and deeming down information and say, follow us. And yet Jesus, he's not, he's not just a prophet. He's not just a good, ordinary teacher. He's not just a priest, 
a mediator. He's not just our defendant. He's not just the one who stands there. He does. He is our great intercessor. He is the one who day and night makes intercession for us. When the enemy points to your sin, he points to his cross. When the enemy lies to you and says, no, you're, you're, you're way too far gone. Jesus points to his blood that is always sufficient and never runs out. He's not just our teacher. He's not just our mediator. He's our king. He's the only one worthy and incorruptible who stands in the place of teacher, mediator, and king. And so, friend, when, when, you're, when you're beginning to walk out your life, you go, man, who should I listen to? Who will defend me? Who's in charge of my life? He's the great prophet, priest, and he's our king. You can choose willingly. He will not, as Psalms 110 say, he will not coerce and manipulate, but his people will freely come under his rule because his rule and his reign is better than men. It's better than government. It's better than the teachers of the doctrines of demons. So listen to him, trust him, and follow him. Will you pray with me? Gracious Heavenly Father, our great high priest, our mediator between God and man, a priest forever because you conquered death. There's not another one who has to come along, another pastor, another leader who needs to know our name and know our clout and know our family and know our lineage. He's the one who teaches. He's the one who defends. He's the one who leads and guides our great God and priest and king. His name is Jesus. Our all-sufficient Jesus. Everything we need is found in Jesus. Stop looking, friend. Stop looking to the philosophies of the day to soothe your soul. Stop trying to scrape together clout and references and making sure you're in with the right crowd and you got the right people vouching for you and you hang out with these people and that gives you some type of street cred. You don't need anyone else's name on your chest except the banner of Jesus Christ. And then fear no one but God alone because he's king and he's coming again. So let everything we say and do bring glory to God and good to this valley. And everyone said, amen. amen. Will you give Jesus one more hand clap of praise?